You can't just go in and say, well, I'm a ufologist. I only want to hear about the lights. I mean, come on, the whole point of this, this whole paranormal thing is that we don't know what's going on. So we don't know which elements are important and which ones are not. So at this point, we need to go in and collect information about everything and then look at all of it and look for patterns. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is October 27th, 2007, and this week we have a very interesting and unique interview. Our guest is one of the summer of 2007's breakout stars in the world of esoterica, Karen Dolan. Many of you may know her husband, Richard Dolan, for his fantastic work in UFO studies. But what many of you may be discovering just now is that this past summer, Karen Dolan entered the world of the esoteric and ufology, launching her own internet radio program known as Through the Keyhole, where she interviews a myriad of researchers in a wide variety of fields. Karen has a number of perspectives on the world of the esoteric and ufology, not just from being the spouse of a prominent researcher, but also from her own years of research into the field plus new avenues that she's begun to explore. Those three elements really coalesce into making her the ideal BOA Audio guest. In this interview, we're going to be discussing what made Karen decide to enter the world of the esoteric, the dynamics of being the spouse of a UFO researcher, various aspects of her podcast series. We're going to hit a lot of the hot-button topics in ufology, such as exopolitics, women in ufology, the pros and cons of UFO conferences, the fragmentation of UFO studies, and a few other big-picture ufology questions. We're going to delve into Karen's research into the desensitization of children to the UFO phenomenon. She has just begun looking into this strange connection between children's programming and potentially embedded ET and UFO images. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. This is a jam-packed interview. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Karen Dolan, let me give you a little bit of background on her. Karen Dolan was born and raised in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York and has had a keen interest in folklore and ghost stories all her life. She is now the host of Through the Keyhole, a weekly internet radio program devoted to ufology and the paranormal. On her show, as well as her private research, she is interested in the connections between various fringe topics, such as cryptozoology, ufology, poltergeists, and hidden history. For many years, she has engaged in in-depth studies of ancient, pre-Christian religions, and has a strong interest in comparative myth. Karen also provides copy editing and transcription services for various researchers and writers in the UFO paranormal field, including her husband Richard Dolan, who is author of UFOs and the National Security State. Karen lives with her husband and their two homeschooled children in Rochester, New York, and her show can be heard on ParanormalRadioNetwork.com Sunday afternoons from 5 to 7 Eastern. Her website is www.KeyholePublishing.com K-E-Y-H-O-L-E-P 
P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on September 20th, 2007. Karen Dolan on Banal of America Audio, Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Our guest this week is Karen Dolan. She is the host of Through the Keyhole on the Paranormal Radio Network. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with her husband, Richard Dolan, who is the author of UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 1. Karen Dolan emerged as a part of the esoteric scene this year, and I think personally, as someone who follows the personalities of the UFO business and the personalities of the esoteric business, I found Karen Dolan becoming a part of the scene to be as an amazing story as some of the general you know, UFO drone picture stories that everybody's talking about. Karen was uh, always with Richard. I saw her at the conferences and stuff, and all of a sudden she's doing her own thing, and it's really exciting, and I, I want to get her on the show here for season three to talk about her work and, and where it's headed. So welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you so much, Tim. I'm really happy to be here. Well, let's start out with uh, your bio, your background, um, you know, where you came from and, and how you got interested in the esoteric world. Where, where I came from, gosh. Well, I was born in the Rochester area, which is where Rich and I live now. He came from New York City and um, came up to Rochester to go to college and got stuck here. So <laughs> we're still here. Um, I've been in the involved in the esoteric world, I guess you could say, my whole life. I've always been interested in those stories, stories about witchcraft, um, any kind of paranormal topics ever since I was a kid. By the time I was about 10, I think I'd read every book on the paranormal in our local library and um, just kind of kept going from there. Oddly enough, I never was interested in UFOs, never even came across the topic until after Rich told me he was writing his book on it. It just wasn't something I'd ever thought about. And he actually did not even want to tell anybody. He didn't tell anyone for a long time when he was writing his book because he had been in the academic world. He was working on his Ph.D. at the University of Rochester. He was planning on becoming a history professor, and he'd already seen what kind of acceptance academicians give yeah. colleagues who try to get involved in UFOs. Um, he said it was bad enough if you just mentioned the Kennedy assassination. So he was keeping it pretty quiet. He didn't even tell me until he was pretty well along in his research and actually starting to put the book together. And he even asked me to please keep it quiet for a while longer. So I didn't tell anybody until after he did that he was doing this, even though I thought it was pretty cool. But look, I don't see any reason to keep it quiet, but, you know, certainly respect you and do this. Um during the course of that, while he was writing his book, he did decide not to continue in academia and um, decided that he wanted to go more independently. He wanted to write this book that he felt needed to be written, and he said, you know, I'll just do my writing career, and he wasn't, he was kind of losing interest in teaching in an academic setting anyway. So I said, you know, why, why beat yourself up over this? Just do what you're going to do and get the book out and go from there and see what happens. Yeah. Now, did he know all along that you were interested in the esoteric, or was it sort of like he, oh, one day he was like, I'm working on a UFO book, and you were like, whoa, you know, I'm interested in all this other oh, stuff. Oh, here's my secret. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he actually knew, like, almost as soon as we met. The first time he came to my apartment when we were dating, he saw I had a, a ton of books on ghosts and witchcraft and all these things. I I thought he was going to be really taken aback, and I thought, oh, great, I'm gonna never going to see this guy again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But um, surprisingly, he thought it was kind of cool. 
Nice. Like as I said, you sort of emerged here this year as as a real a new a new player, I guess you could say, in the field <laughs> of the esoteric. Was this something that had been developing for a while, or did it just come up? Like uh, obviously. Richard came out with a book, and he became really well-known in the UFO field, and he's really uh, one of the big superstars of the field now. Was it something like where you were like, wow, this is great, this is amazing, you know, I think I'm going to try and do something, or was it just sort of a spur-of-the-moment thing that came about this year? I never thought about setting out to become a player in this. And and thank you for saying those nice things about me and about Rich. Wow, that was really neat to hear. Well, I mean it. I mean, um, I, well, I'm, not, I'm not BSing you. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's still nice to hear, especially if it's true. <laughs> um, no, and, and the funny thing is, I mean, Rich didn't set out to become a player in this either. He He was actually doing his research in American history, which was for his PhD. You know, he was doing his doctoral dissertation research Cold War history, political science, and he came across occasional mentions of UFOs, and they were conflicting mentions. They'd either be official statements saying, no, we looked into it, there's nothing to it, no big deal, or they'd be these super, super top secret memos saying they took this very seriously. So he just thought, well, what the heck is it? Was Were they serious about this or were they not? And started digging around just for his own satisfaction. Pretty soon, he'd accumulated so much information, he said, you know what, somebody's got to just put this in book form. So he did. But he wasn't thinking about this leading into oh, I'm sure, you know, yeah. being on the radio and being on TV and speaking at all these conferences. That It was kind of like falling into a river. Yeah. You yeah. know, and suddenly we're, we're way downstream and everything's all different. But we never really planned any of this to happen. Oh, I'm sure. And, you know, once once Rich got caught up in this, I was kind of thinking, okay, well, you know, I've always been interested in anything that we don't fully understand. You know, who built the pyramids, uh, Coral Castle in Florida, any anything like this. So to me, I thought, okay, you know, this is pretty neat, another thing to look into. Once we started with all the traveling and everything, it was like, man, everything changed. Our whole lives changed. And, of course, we had kids at the same time that his book came out. Now we have two kids, which we didn't before. And so our lives all changed because of that, too. But everything happened all at once. And I started to feel a little bit like one of our friends described it as like a ufology widow. Either I could stay home and raise the kids and try to keep a normal life going here while he went off and did his thing. Yeah. And I'd never see him. And we would grow farther and farther apart because, you know, when you get into this, you start getting into ufology or really serious investigation of the paranormal the way you see the world changes. Exactly, yeah. And I actually have, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen, a lot of couples who get into this field don't stay together very long because your whole worldview changes. And yeah. if you don't both go there, you can't, you just cannot keep it together. And I started to realize that things were going to be that way. You know, I could either go with Rich and change my worldview too, or things were probably going to be very difficult to hold together. And since it was something I was interested in anyway, it was easy for me to make the decision to do that hard work of adjusting my worldview. And, um, you know, Rich and I had just, we've always, always done, gone through things together. Yeah. Even when we were dating, we used to joke about being Team Dolan. (laughs) And when we had the kids, you know, the team got bigger, but we really have always, 
gone face things together. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's a surprising turn of events, I guess, because, you know, some people write books, some people do this, some people do that, but you sort of just jump right into uh, the radio realm, which is a whole different sort of area than, than what Rich is, because he's, you know, doing the writing and the lecturing. Obviously, you're doing lecturing now, too, but yeah. uh, a different sort of uh, genre, in a way, the media aspect of it. So what made you decide to get into the radio part? Well, a friend of ours, Guy Malone, who has a show called Live from Roswell on the Paranormal Radio Network, um, he started his show last January 2007. Now, he'd been a friend of ours for several years since he invited Rich out to speak at his conference in Roswell a few years ago. And, in fact, he organized the whole Roswell conference this past summer as well. So he's becoming a really major player there, too. Um, Anyway, he started his show in January, and he was lining up people that he knew in the ufology field to come on sometime and be guests. And he had already arranged with Rich that, you know, he would do an interview with Rich at some point. And then he called me, and he said, you know, well, why don't you come on, and you can give us a different perspective on what it's like to live with a ufologist rather than what it's like to be one. And I thought, wow, what a cool idea. <laughs> and first I said, well, no, nobody's going to want to hear what I have to say. You, know, you want Rich. And he said, no, no, because we're friends, and I want to chat about, you know, what this life is like from your point of view. So I said, well, okay, you know, we – we went ahead and did the show, and apparently ratings were very good. You know, his producer said they were excellent for that show. So I thought, great, that was really fun. A few weeks later, I mean, I thought that was going to be the extent of my radio career. And a few weeks later, it was time for Rich to do his interview with Guy. And just before the show started, Guy called, and he said, hey, is Karen there? Can she come on, too? <laughs> I said, sure. I had a lot of fun. I was hoping for another chance to get on. So, so the three of us did the show together. We were just chatting about stuff, and it was really fun. It it was less a conventional interview than three good friends having a conversation about ufology and what it is to all of us. And once again, they told us the ratings were terrific. So I thought, well, good. You know, I had so much fun doing this. I'm really glad that people seem to enjoy listening. A few weeks after that, Guy needed a backup host. He was not able to do his show because he was at the Aztec conference and he wasn't able to broadcast the whole thing. So he called me up and he said, do you want to take the first part of the show? Now, by this time I was having kittens because I thought, oh, I'd love to do it, but I don't want to mess up your show. <laughs> I'm going to destroy your show for you. And he said, no, no, you'll be great. I, you know, you don't have to do that much. It's really easy. We got another friend of ours, Lisa Davis, to come on to be the guest. Well, Lisa and I have known each other for years. So I said, okay, I can get on chat with Lisa for a little bit. So we did that, and once again, the ratings were terrific. Now, by this time, Guy's producer, Joe Montaldo, was telling me at the end of the show that, you know, he kept saying, I've got time slots. Why don't you take one? You know, <laughs> you're doing really well. So um, I thought it over because I really wasn't sure that I could do it. You know, I was really unsure of myself. But then I thought about how much fun I have every time I get on the radio. And I said, you know, it's so stupid of me to say no to this because I love it. And people seem to like what I do. And I, here I've got this producer with a time slot. He's begging me to take it. You know, why not just do it? Yeah. But if I go out there and flop, then I'll end it, and he'll find somebody else to take my slot, and that'll be that. But why would I not at least try it? Exactly, yeah. And there's been a real buzz about the show and about you. Like I said, uh, this whole year it seems like I've been hearing a lot about you. So I think that's so funny. 
<laughs> I just can't get over the fact that people actually enjoy hearing me sit around and talk with somebody because I have such a great time doing it. When you set about putting together the show, did you have like a specific series of guests in mind or did you, you know, were you planning on uh, talking to people that you already kind of knew from the field? Because you have tons of contacts through Richard, yeah. through all your travels and everything. So you guys know yeah. a ton of people. Was it like, oh, I'm going to have all these people I know on? Or was it more like now's the opportunity to talk to a lot of people that I haven't had the chance to meet yet or chance to speak yet? with and explore, you know, a whole other realm and stuff. So what went into the thought process of uh, choosing guests and that kind of stuff? Actually, both of those. Um, I did feel like I wanted to take it in more of a paranormal direction, a, a wider range than mm -hmm. ufology. But at the same time, I felt like, well, I already know so many people in this field that I shouldn't have any trouble lining up a guest, you know, calling up a friend to come and, and be on the show but I wanted to do more than just ufology also. Um, I listen to Coast to Coast a lot as well, and, you know, I was getting some ideas off that, the kind of topics that George Norrie and Art Bell would cover. I mean, like they did a show on Coral Castle in Florida, and I thought, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Somebody on. Um, right now I'm actually looking for someone to talk about um, hauntings. Like I'm thinking Borley Rectory would be a really fun one mm -hmm. to do because I've always found that really fascinating. So I'm trying to find an individual right now who'd be a good person to talk about that. That's one of the good parts about uh, having sort of like an independent show like you and I both have is that uh -huh. uh, as a student of the esoteric, it's really – it's a great vehicle to learn so much more stuff because, like, I'm kind of the same way. I'll be listening to Coast to Coast or if I'm at the bookstore uh -huh. and I see a book, you know, it's not just like, oh, this will be a cool book to read. Now it's like – this would be a great book to read, and then I'll get in touch with the guy and bring him on the show, and we can talk about it even more, and I'll find out more yeah. information. It's really, uh, it opens up a great avenue for further research. Isn't that fun? Oh, it's the best. And I used to be so shy around authors, I would never think that I could actually contact somebody who wrote a book. You know, that was just so intense for me. I, I, when I was growing up, I was really, really shy. And that's why my parents, I think, couldn't believe for a while that I was actually on the radio. <laughs> like, You're talking to people? <laughs> and the first time I told my parents, you know, I was doing the show, and, oh, yeah, I got about 30,000 listeners, and somewhere in the U.K., and I had a few call in from Australia. And they're wow. just like, what? <laughs> wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Speak a little bit to that uh, transition, I guess, from uh, spectator Outside the, the public eye to presenter personality aspect, um, like you said, it was so weird that there was this buzz about the show and we were just mm -hmm. talking about sort of how it opens up all these new avenues for exploration. Talk a little bit about what it's like to go from uh, spectator to presenter. Well, it's sort of been making the transition for a while. When I first went to conferences with Rich, nobody knew who I was. Mm -hmm. You know, they... I, well, I was like this nobody. They probably assumed I was his wife, but no one expected me to know anything or to do anything other than, you know, like that I had come along for the trip. And they probably expected me to go out someplace else while the conference was going on. <laughs> I think I surprised a few people that I actually stayed and listened to the presentations and asked questions. And, but at that time, I didn't know anything about UFOs or about the history of the field or any of this. I mean, despite the fact that Rich had written this definitive history, and I had helped him do some editing, but I hadn't, at that point, I had not really read through even his entire book. I had read most of it, but it was all in bits and pieces. I hadn't, like, sat down and read the entire book straight through. And his book has so much information, it was really overwhelming. I actually couldn't take it all in at first. 
since then, I mean, that was years ago, I have read almost every book that he used as research for that. Oh, wow. I've read a lot of other books on the subject. I've talked to these people. I've met all these authors. I've listened to their radio interviews. So, you know, I kid people. I say, you can't live in a house with Rich Dolan and not eventually know something about the history of ufology. (laughs) Yeah. It's not possible. Um, I've seen all the DVDs. You know, whenever he's on a documentary or something, I watch it. And, of course, they always have lots of other people on there, too. So I get a good overview. Mm -hmm of a lot of different opinions and a lot of different information. So, and then each time we went to a conference, I'd be able to participate a little more and a little more and a little more. So people were kind of starting to see me as at least a person who is interested in this topic. Yeah. And not just as a wife who tags around after her husband. Because sometimes when when husbands go to business conferences, their wives might go along, but they'll go off sightseeing while their husbands are in their meetings. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really think that's what people thought I was going to do at first, but. Yeah, well, you do see that with uh, you know, people who come to the conferences; they bring other people mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, family and stuff. Well, sure, and you know, and it's fair enough that not everyone in the family has the same interests. Yeah, it just worked yeah. out really well for you guys. It just happened that we do, mm-hmm. you know. Although, you know, Rich is really interested in the government aspects and the historical aspects and the cover-ups and all of this, and I'm really not. Yeah, that's that's actually what I was going to ask you about next. We should plug the UFO Magazine interview. Wow, when's that coming out, like next month? Uh, November. November. I understand. Literally in November, or is it like coming out in October? Well, November issue. I was told it'll be out in the November issue, and actually I was told that it might be in two issues because I I got a little carried away when I was writing my answers, and I guess they were kind of long, so it might get split. I was saying uh, before we started the show, I was lucky enough to get a copy of the interview already because, of course, Leslie of Been All of America conducted the interview for her column in UFO Magazine, so check it out if you're listening and you can get out of the newsstand. Definitely uh, pick it up. It's a great interview, and I've tried to not overlap too many of the questions, mm-hmm. and one of the points that was in the interview was, uh, was, was what you had just said, that Richard is really into the uh, conspiracy aspect of the UFO phenomenon, the cover-up part of it, the government elements to it, and you're more interested in sort of the more ephemeral nature of it, mm-hmm. you know, where the aliens are coming from, if they're coming here, you know, what, what's what's their deal, what's their agenda. Talk a little bit about that, and I also wanted to ask you sort of like, is there anything that you and, and Richard disagree about? Is there anything that you're like, uh, that's like sort of like the joke of the of the house, you know, where you're like, you know, that Kenneth Arnold story doesn't add up, and Richard's like, no, it does, or anything like that. Oh, Tim, we don't disagree on anything <laughs> ever. <laughs> I knew I couldn't say that with a straight face. Okay. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, I don't think there are. I'm trying to think of some major point that we do disagree on, and I'm. Oh my gosh, we do agree on everything. I'll be darned. Um. Well, as far as, the, you know, what we're interested yeah, in, then the, the, now I'm going to yeah, be distracted because I'm a, still thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was more of a jokey sort of thing. <laughs> like, you know, there's nothing to crop circles. Yes, there is, yeah. something like that. But, uh, but yeah, talk about your, your yeah. divergent interest as far as, um, well, as far as the UFO phenomenon goes. Yeah. See, well, Rich, as I told you, he got into it through his academic research in history. Mm-hmm. And he's studying politics and he's studying politicians and how they work with each other and how they handle information and how they cover up some information and they release some information. And and that's his whole thing Mm -hmm. is human beings and what we do with this information. 
And what I've always been interested in is not so much in people and what they choose to do with this stuff as what is the nature of reality yeah. and what is out there and what other beings are there and what might they be doing here. So our, our interests really run parallel, and we read a lot of the same books, but we read them to get different things out of them. Yeah. Uh, you're an advocate for a more blended mix of esoterica, um, you know, cryptozoology, ufology, all these other elements, you know, not just a specialization like we see a lot of times. Uh, yeah, because but more I, of a blended and I want to make clear that I think specialization is really, really important because it's impossible to dig deeply enough to uncover new information on something unless you really specialize in that one area. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, I, this is really important. I'm glad that you gave me an opportunity to say this because I feel really strongly about this one. I've heard a lot of researchers recently coming down hard on other researchers for being the other of these two kinds. There's the kind of researcher who chooses one case or one topic and they dig and dig and dig and dig and they can uncover all kinds of new information. But they don't look at anything other than that one focused topic. And then there are people who are accused of being armchair researchers who take the facts and the information that other people uncover and they put it in context. Rich has been attacked by several people for not going out and interviewing people himself, but for pulling up other sources and correlating information that's been in other people's books. Now, I mean, first of all, when he did it with the one book that he's completed that's been published already, a lot of the sources that he used were out of print. They were older things. They were almost impossible for him to find. So what he was really doing was preserving some very important information that was almost not available anymore to any researchers. Yeah. So first of all, that point needed to be made, I think, that he really did a huge service to the field by preserving some of the earliest work that I know he spent months working with used book dealers here in Rochester and all over the country, actually. He had people tracking things down for him. Some of them took over a year to find a book. Oh, wow. Now, that kind of thing, you know, the information that's in those books, when he finally did get hold of them, you know, now it's available again to any other researcher who comes out. And this is stuff that would have been lost, just completely, you know, maybe available in a couple of private book collections here and there, but he really wanted this to be preserved and to be made available. Yeah. And he did. And he also took all these different sources and he, he correlated the information. You know, he put it all into context with each other. And that's one thing I really feel that is necessary. And I would take it even a step farther. And I would say, for example, in the Skinwalker Ranch case in Utah, I believe it is. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a case where you have UFO activity, you've got poltergeist activity, there are strange creatures that maybe cryptozoologists would be interested in. But how on earth is anybody supposed to figure out what's going on in that ranch unless they all work together or unless at least someone is willing to look at all of the, the phenomena? You can't just go in and say, well, I'm a ufologist, so I, I only want to hear about the lights. Yeah, exactly. Don't tell me about anything else. I mean, come on, the whole point of this, this whole paranormal thing is that we don't know what's going on. So we don't know which elements are important and which ones are not. 
So at this point, we need to go in and collect information about everything and then look at all of it and look for patterns. What do you think we can do to sort of uh, lessen that dichotomy between the two camps, between, you know, the uh, the people who want to keep everything in separate sort of uh, realms and the people who want to do a mix? I mean, the only thing I can see, the only thing I've been able to think of is just to talk a lot about how important both sides are. Yeah. Because really, I mean, saying you're going to look at all the information and put it all in context will only go so far if there's no one out there digging as deeply as some of these people do and actually coming out with the new information. And there is no way to get some of this information unless you spend years focusing on a single case. And God bless the people who do that. I, I don't think I'd be able to because I just I just keep hopping around. I keep finding something else that's interesting, and I can't stick with one thing that long. Yeah. But I really admire the people who can. But it's funny, you know, when Rich was doing his research, he'd be talking about a UFO case, and I'd say, gosh, that's funny. That sounds just like poltergeist activity. And he'd say, really? Because he didn't know he hadn't read as many ghost stories as I had. And I'd say, yeah, poltergeists do that sort of thing. Or, gosh, that's near water. You find a lot of poltergeist activity near water. You know, and we'd find things like that, that where you'd find this crossover, and that's what really got me interested and in noticing that there were some researchers who really don't believe in doing that. Exactly, yeah. Now, do you think that that uh, that, that trend sort of is changing? I, it seems like there's uh, at least uh, more people coming on the horizon and, and who are advocating sort of more of a mix. And, and like you said, with the Skinwalker book, mm-hmm. that sort of uh, is a really good template for what really needs to sort of happen with more yeah. of a mix of subjects. Do you think that the mood is changing, I guess, I do. Uh, with regards to that attitude? Yeah, I do. I really do see, in the last year or so, I've seen a lot more, for example, radio shows that don't just focus on ufology, but cover ufology and the paranormal. Mm -hmm. You know, just signs that people are beginning to group these things under the same larger heading and accepting the fact that maybe they're related in ways that we don't really understand yet. I mean, maybe they are different, but gosh, Jacques Vallée was saying a long time ago that the old fairy stories sure sounded like modern stories of alien abductions. And he said maybe we shouldn't be calling them fairies or aliens. Maybe they're the same being and maybe they're something completely different than what we've thought they were. The thing that really irritates me is when people come out and say, well, we know who they are and we know where they came from and we know why they're here. I'm like, <laughs> I don't. You know, I'm glad you do, but I don't. And it, that worries me because people are saying things like, um, you know, there's some individuals who say, oh, well, if, if they come and tell us we should do something, then we should just do it because they're here to help us. Yeah. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, maybe they're just really good liars. <laughs> I would need more proof. I mean, maybe they are here to help us, and maybe we should listen to them, but I'm n- not convinced yet. Kind of keeping in subject with, with the dichotomy aspect, what about the ongoing debate within ufology or the sort of exopolitical aspect versus the science aspect. Obviously, uh, I'm in favor of sort of them working together, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like that that, uh, that only happens in small doses. What do you think of that sort of activist nature versus science nature of ufology and, and, and what side really um, has the advantage, I guess you could say? Okay, so you're talking about the researchers. You're not talking about whatever beings are out there. You're talking about the researchers who believe in yeah, I'm talking about the uh, the sort of trend in ufology that's that's uh, it sort of has become kind of a debate in the last ten yeah. years or so over 
should we be, you know, trying to get active about this and, and alerting people and, and getting the government involved and stuff like that and trying to the exopolitical part. And then there's the other side that says, you know, that's pointless. It's never going to happen. Let's focus on the nuts and bolts of this, and and you know those exo political people are crazy. It gets you know how it is in Ukraine. Yeah, it gets, yeah. Then it turns oh, we ugly. Just, <laughs> we just came back from the exo politics conference, so yes, I know exactly how that is. <laughs> you know, once again, I'm going to say I think everybody's right, and I think we do need the scientific, really close investigation of what facts we do have, because we're trying to figure out what's out there. You know, it's here. It's here. They are here. Whoever. We want to know who this is, where they came from, what are we dealing with exactly. Now, we're all at a point, we're talking about a group of people who's at a point of being well past believing that those lights in the sky are something. Um, you know, when a, an individual first comes across the ufology topic, it's, is that light in the sky really moving? Is it really not the planet Venus or a satellite or something like that? That's the really, really basic end of it. And, you know, when we were at the Exopolitical Conference, somebody pointed out that we were all so far past that. We're all up at a point of saying, okay, yes, UFOs are real. There is life elsewhere, and that life is here. And now we're saying how are we going to deal with it? So, yeah, I do believe that the exopolitical faction is correct in saying if life from elsewhere, whether it's another dimension or another galaxy or whatever, if life from somewhere else is here, yes, we sure as heck better figure out how we are going to interact with this life. In order to do that, we need to know something about them. We need to know if they're here to eat us or if they're here ignoring us. Do they want something else on our planet? Are we on the way to something else for them? Do they just stop off to rest on the way to something completely unrelated? I mean, that's going to affect how we deal with them. Yeah. And the way we determine that is through the science, the nuts and bolts, analyzing what we do have. Then we go back to the exopolitical side, which says the government should be releasing what information they have. And that's absolutely true. The government should be telling us because then we'd have a lot more information that we would be able to use to figure out who we're dealing with which in turn would let us know how we should deal with them. So, yeah, everybody's right. We need <laughs> all of this information. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, one subject that we talk about a lot when we have uh, women on the show is is women in the esoteric, women in ufology. Um, you're, you're sort of a rare breed, uh, in not only that you're a woman in ufology, but also you're a wife in ufology, which is, mm -hmm. I think, uh, with the exception of maybe – uh, Sherry Steiger and Brad Steiger. I don't know too many husband and wife couples that are even in the field. Well, there's Ed and Chris Sherwood. Oh, okay. All right. Circles. Um, hmm. Well, there you go. We have one. one. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's Bob and Terry Brown. We're doing the uh, UFO Congress. So I guess the question would just be, you know, well, what's your perspective of women in the field of the esoteric, women in ufology more specifically? Because that seems to be where there's less um, – women than men. It seems like a much smaller group. Um, what's your take on being a woman in the field of ufology, and, and why do you think it is that, that there are, are so many men and, and so few women? Um, it's interesting because I, I never really thought much about this until people started asking me, you know, what's it like to be a woman in ufology? I'm thinking, um, what? <laughs> like one of the only, and people would say, well, there are so few women. I'd start looking around like, oh, yeah, I guess there are. It really wasn't that much of an issue to me. I really never thought about it until 
recently. Um, I was just, I was in it because the subject matter is really fascinating. And the other people I know, men and women, who are in this field are in it because we're all fascinated by it. I think it's possible that one reason women are not in this as much is because we tend to be the ones taking care of the families. I'm really afraid of opening a can of worms here and having people come down on me. But I just, I think the way our society is structured that men have more freedom to pursue other interests than women do just because somebody's got to be making sure the kids get to school and get to their activities and all of this, and it tends to be the mom. Um, a lot of the people I talk to at conferences, a lot of attendees especially, don't seem to have small children, and I discovered that from talking to them about my particular field which I don't want to get locked into. I don't want to be like the person who does the media desensitization stuff. I, you know, there are lots of things I'm interested in, but that's the one I've begun speaking about. Yeah. But when I was home with our kids, when they were very small, I'd be watching TV with them, and I would see these things on TV that I found disturbing. And I'd mention it at conferences, and nobody else knew what I was talking about because they'd never seen the shows. Yeah. And that's when I found out that none of them had children at home. So either you get young couples or younger people who are out who don't have kids yet, mm -hmm. or you get older people whose kids are grown up and moved out and are on doing their own thing. Now, I think during that time when families have children at home, it just seems to me that men are more likely to be able to do their day job and then pursue another interest in the evening. And the one doing the cooking and the laundry and everything and keeping things running is the wife and the mom. Well, do you see the trend changing as far as women in ufology? Because it seems like it's a growing demographic in the field. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I see quite a few women, and conference attendees are just as likely to be female as male. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's a large interest in this. And, you know, maybe some of it has to do with the social aspect of, you know, men and women are redefining who's taking care of the dishes and the laundry at home, too. I mean, I know in our house, you know, Rich works a day job, plus he's writing his book. Right now, I don't have an, another job outside the home. I'm home with our kids, and we do homeschool, and the kids are in a bunch of activities. So I said, look, I will take on the role of taking care of the house and driving the kids around to their stuff and taking the bulk of the homeschooling. But if I have a really busy week, if I've got something coming up with a radio show or if I'm sick or something, you know, Rich absolutely doesn't hesitate to jump in and do whatever. If I'm busy with the kids and running late, he'll make dinner. You know, it's just not an issue around here. Yeah. And I think a lot of other families probably are that way too, which is really great because it does free up both partners to be able to spend some time on their own pursuits, on their own interests. And then if they share them, you know, with the way this really changes your worldview, I think it's really hugely important for couples to be able to go through this worldview-changing thing together. The other sort of general demographic issue that we talk about a lot on the show is young people in ufology. And since you probably have a lot of, I guess, market experience in the sense that you've been to a lot of conferences, you've seen the demographic of people interested in ufology, what would you say uh, the situation is with young people in ufology? Because obviously... 
Uh, there seems to be a lack of them, but it also seems to be a trend that's changing. So I don't know. Uh, have you seen it sort of changing and you see it getting better or you see more young people getting involved? I see young people getting involved quite a bit. I'm trying to think whether it's been more over the past year. I think it has been increasing a bit. I think I have seen more younger attendees at the conferences. Um, it's There's an interesting point because, you know, as a parent, Rich and I have talked about bringing our kids to the conferences. Now, they're 9 and 11, and they're still a bit young. And that's partly because I mean, we say that partly because I don't think they would enjoy sitting still and listening to people talk yeah, for a yeah. long time, but also because some of the subject matter, I think, is just too scary for kids. You know, I, I would definitely never take our kids to a conference where there might be talk about abductions, for example. I think that's just too intense for kids to be getting into, and they don't need to be worrying about someone coming into their bedroom at night at home. Um, I mean, there's something to be said I'm sure someone's going to say, well, if it's happening, you know, shouldn't they know about it? It's the truth. But no, not a nine-year-old kid. Yeah, they're not the parents. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a perfect segue into what uh, – now, I know you said you didn't want to be pigeonholed into this subject, but it has in turn sort of become your first uh, – big sort of niche issue that you're yeah. talking about, and that's the media desensitization of children on UFOs and aliens. And I believe you presented on that at Roswell mm -hmm. uh, in July, and you're going to be presenting about it again at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference in November. That's right. I guess for starters, before we really dig into the issue, what made you interested in this topic in the first place? You kind of alluded to the, what the sort of budding interest in it in the first place, but what started it all? Well, what started it was watching TV with my kids at home. You know, and we were watching PBS, so I'm thinking, oh, this is fine. You know, I don't have to worry about anything that my kids are seeing on PBS, you know. And I'd sit down and watch Sesame Street with them, and, and this was early homeschooling. we you know, do our letters and our numbers and our colors and all that. And then we started watching Teletubbies, and I thought, boy, that's kind of weird, but okay. Because, you know, they're British, and British comedy is, British humor is a little different from Americans. So I thought, well, it's kind of quirky, but all right. Well, then they came out with this thing called Booba, which is the one that I started asking people about at conferences, just in conversation, and no one had heard of this because no one had kids. People heard of Teletubbies because there was a big fuss in the media about Teletubbies. Yeah. But Booba goes much farther. I showed a video clip, actually, during my talk at Roswell of the opening segment of Booba. Now, this is the, the piece that's on every single episode opens up with this. It starts off with a silvery orb coming up into the sky out of water or from behind water, from behind the horizon. And it sails across the sky and it's trailing a rainbow behind it. And it zigzags across the sky in these big swoopy motions. And I, I mean, the first time I looked at it, I thought, oh my God, that's a UFO. And of course, my kids are just sitting watching it completely oblivious, oblivious because we hadn't talked about UFOs at all to them at this point. So I'm watching this thing and it it flies around and it comes down close to the ground in a park where children were playing and it kind of swoops around them. And they all start dancing and hopping and yelling, booba, booba. <laughs> and then it flies away and it does this again. It comes down near another group of kids and they do the same thing. They're all yelling, booba. And then it flies off again. And now suddenly the camera angle changes and you're looking inside this orb. And it's like being inside a spaceship. And it's got these pods on the inside of the wall with beings asleep in them. And they wake up as you look at them and their eyes snap open and you can hear an audible snap, which just 
sends a chill down my back, and I don't know why. It just really bothers me. And their eyes pop open, and they're these huge, round, black, glittering eyes. Yeah. And all I can think of is like the Whitley Strieber communion thing, those giant black eyes. The first time I saw this, I was just walking across the living room, and I thought, oh, what the heck is that? New show. You know, and I stopped to watch it for a second. When their eyes snapped open, I realized that I had backed halfway across the room. I had my back up against the wall. And I said, turn it off. We're not watching this. <laughs> my kids are like, yeah, I don't think I like this. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Yes, it's weird. Turn it off. <laughs> What's your take on this desensitization? Do you think that there's a process at work, or is this just the natural extension of uh, the desensitization that's been going on for generations, I guess, with popular culture? And, you know, obviously – the people making the show, do they have an agenda at work, do you think, to desensitize kids, or are they just desensitize themselves? Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out, actually. I'm still digging around there, and I haven't been able to establish any satisfying answer one way or the other yet. I'm really curious to know that, whether the people who are doing it are conscious of all the alien imagery that's going into this. Despite whether they know about it or not, whether they realize they're doing it or not, it seems to me that the effect is desensitizing children to this sort of thing. Now, if you believe in UFO abductions, which not everyone does, I understand that's, you know, when you're new to the field, that's a really hard thing to get your brain around. Um, I've been in this long enough that I do believe. I've, I've spoken to people who've had experiences. I believe that something like this is going on. Now, Imagine your basic abduction experience the way it's described. People are in bed, they wake up, and they see these short beings with big domed heads and great big black eyes surrounding them. Well, that sounds like booba. Okay, they don't have skinny gray bodies. They have big, fat, jewel tone bodies. But I told Rich, you know, probably the next show that comes out of England for PBS is going to have skinny gray things with big black eyes. I'm just thinking if some kid were to wake up and to see a bunch of grays around their bed, they're similar enough to Booba that if somebody said, come on out of your bed and come with us, we're going to take you for a ride, they'd be thinking, okay. And you know what? I don't want that. I talked to some people this past weekend at the conference that we visited in Gaithersburg, just chatting with attendees, you know, and there were people there who said, well, but of course if that happened, it would be okay because aliens are good and they're here to help us. And I said, no, because... Yeah. Personally, I don't know that for sure. And if we're talking about my kids, I am not going to tell them it's okay to go off with somebody that mommy and daddy don't know. I don't care if they're human or alien or who they are. It's not okay to go off with someone I don't know. And, you know, it's preying on children to give them that sort of idea that... And to be fair, the shows are not saying it's okay to go off in a spaceship. I mean, Booba doesn't do that. Okay, these these beings don't, as far as I know, take children off for rides. But they do. They come down and they dance and they play and everything's fine. And I'm just thinking there are beings who do visit people and they do things that aren't very nice. And here you're showing very similar beings, similar in appearance at least, who are coming down and doing things that are nice which is inclined to make children very trusting. To me, it's the same as if you said, you know, if a stranger comes and offers you candy on the street, it's probably okay. 
And if they did want you to go get in their car, that would probably be okay, too. You know, no, it's not. Exactly, I, yeah. Would your point of view change, I guess, if, if you found out that there were shows sort of that portray the aliens in a sinister light, I guess you could say. Like, have you noticed, is it predominantly that the ETs are, are on the good side, or is there a mix of of attitudes on these shows? I have not actually seen very many. Mostly what I, what I wanted to talk about when I gave this presentation was Booba. And I did bring up a few others to put it in context. Um, the ones that I have seen have been primarily positive. Yeah. And other people have come up to me or have written to me since I did the presentation in Roswell, and they've told me about others. Um, one man told me about a Saturday morning cartoon he, he was watching with his grandchildren, and it showed these children on a spaceship talking to a large praying mantis-type being who was teaching them things. They were sitting at a computer. Oh, wow. And he was teaching them things. And I thought, oh, my God, that's like straight out of Jim Sparks' book. <laughs> well, he didn't talk about the praying mantis, I don't think. But, you know, his his book, The Keepers, was all about going on to these ships and being taught. You know, he learned the whole alphabet and everything. And, yeah, apparently this, this imagery is getting into Saturday morning cartoons. And he told me that the aliens were portrayed as um, not – excessively sinister, that they were pretty much like a teacher anywhere. They just were helping to teach these children something. We weren't clear on what exactly they were trying to learn. He didn't get to see the whole program. I think he turned it on in the middle. But I'm trying to track that down because I'd love to see it. Well, what do you think parents should do about, about this desensitization? Because, you know, it's always that's sort of the argument, you know, that it's the parent's responsibility. It's not change the channel if you don't like it. So, you know, <laughs> as a parent, what do you do about, about that desensitization um, of your kids? Well, what parents can always do is to be aware of what is being told to their kids and what information is being loaded into their kids' heads. And all you need to do is watch TV with your kids because then you can always say, you know, either that you agreed or disagreed with the message of the program and ask the kids and see what they're thinking and find out how it's affecting them and say, well, why do you think that was a good thing or why do you think it wasn't? You know, and I try to treat my kids respectfully. I understand. I mean, as I said, they're they're young. You know, they're certainly nowhere near being adults, but they're very intelligent and I do respect their opinions. And when we watch TV like this, I'll I'll say something like, well, what do you think about that? You know, how do you think they portrayed this particular character and do you think they were right to do that or not or you know and then I'll tell them what I think about it and I think that's the most important thing for parents is to respect their kids know what kind of information is coming into their kids heads and what's happening once it gets in there you know how are the kids taking this in and how are they processing it and it sounds like this is something that you just sort of really started digging into. This is a subject you mm -hmm. plan on doing a lot of further research, I presume, because it, it is really um, – and I know you say you didn't want to get pigeonholed into it, but I'm going to give you kudos for looking into it because I'm always a fan of people, you know, thinking outside the box as far as the UFO phenomenon goes and looking at uh, the UFO issue from a number of different angles. And this is something that I've always been sort of interested in, the media desensitization, not just mm -hmm. children but everybody – are you planning on developing this further, and what are you planning on doing as far as research goes and that kind of stuff? Well, I'm still trying to get in touch with some of the people who have developed the shows, the people who make the shows. I'd like to know what their attitudes are. Mm -hmm. And I've found several articles that were written about the programs, and oddly enough, none of them mention the similarity to aliens. 
So I'm curious to know whether they're keeping quiet about it or do they really just not see it? I mean, can they, I guess it's possible if you're not interested in ufology and there are, I have to keep reminding myself, yeah. there are people in the world who just are not interested <laughs> and don't know what the grays look like. Um, you know, maybe they really honestly just don't realize. Or maybe the people who made the programs do know and they're keeping quiet and the people who write the articles don't see it. I don't know. I mean, there are so many permutations it could be. I, I guess what I want to dig around and find out is who's aware of what they're working on and how deliberately are they doing it. Because, you know, in 1953, the Robertson panel came out and uh, they made a recommendation that the public get official disinformation and debunking. They said, let's, let's put out something official to the people saying, yeah, it's no big deal, or showing them alien images and saying, oh, they're fine, they're nice, it's okay. And they, the Robertson panel document even mentioned Walt Disney as a possible company to work with on this. Mm-hmm. And look at the Disney movies that have been coming out. Look at Lilo and Stitch. Stitch is an alien. I mean, they call him that. In the, in the plot line of the movie, they call him an alien experiment. He escapes from the genetics lab where he was made, and he comes here. And then there are these evil aliens who come to get him and take him back, and he doesn't want to go because he has emotion and he wants to stay here. And he also has those big black alien eyes. They're even the almond-shaped big black alien eyes. <laughs> now, do you see... This desensitization, do you see developing further, uh, like is Boobaz a big hit now? And, and uh, do you expect that, that we'll be seeing more programs like this? And it seems like this has been going on for a while. It has been going on for a while. And oddly enough, Booba is off the air where oh, wow. I am now. However, Booba is on DVD and it's available in all of my public libraries. Because when I wanted a video clip, I went to the library and just got one of six or eight DVDs off the shelf. Oh, wow. You know, and those are, they're different episodes. You know, they're all different in the, in the series. So it's certainly available. It's popular in the sense that it's out there, it's in all the libraries, it's in all the stores, I'm sure. Um, you know, it's, it's readily available, but it's not actually on the air right now. And I'm not quite sure why that is either. That's another thing I want to look into. I mean, we'll probably find out it's something prosaic like contract disputes. That's usually what it turns out to be. Now, do you see like a book coming out of this in the future or some magazine articles and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing for the subject? Yeah, possibly some articles. I mean, I don't have enough information really to do a book. Although, I mean, because I live with Rich, and to us, a book is a 500-page home. (laughs) So I don't know. (laughs) Maybe a normal-sized book, (laughs) maybe. I, that would depend on how much more information I'm able to uncover. Yeah, I might actually do a short book on it. Yeah, because I think it's I think this the subject's rich for interpretation and 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 for something to look into. I'd be interested yeah. in seeing how it breaks down pro vs con et uh, in all the various sort of forms of, of TV shows and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe it's because I was desensitized as a child because I never really uh, was not really afraid of the ETs type of thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe I would probably be right in the heart of any sort of desensitization if this is a long-term project. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe maybe it really isn't anything, and maybe I'm just making a fuss about nothing because I've been going to all these conferences and I've, I've learned to be very um, conspiracy-minded. You know, maybe I'm seeing cover-ups everywhere I look and they, they really aren't there. And that's entirely possible. But as I dig around, I'll find out, you know, it, it was an accident. It wasn't. <laughs> there is no big ulterior motive. Maybe there really isn't anything to it. 
But in a way, I think that would be interesting, too, because where's this imagery coming from if it's not according to a plan? It's important to have that perspective, though, because if you went into this, you know, insisting that this was going on, that there was uh, that this was all intentional, you know, that's a mistake a lot of people do make in, in the field yeah. of the esoteric. So it's great that you have the open mind that, you know, this may be nothing at all. Yeah. <laughs> I always respect people that, that have that perspective because you have to, you know, otherwise yeah. you're going to be constantly trying to fit the latest news into your theory instead of really interpreting it. Exactly. We always kind of do that. You know, whenever something comes up, I try to fit it into a theory to see, you know, does it fit or doesn't it? But you have to be willing to say, no, this one doesn't fit. Absolutely. So it's Absolutely. Nothing. You know, I actually, I tried to get Rich to do this. I was telling Rich for years, you know, this is an interesting topic. You should look into this. You should do a presentation on this, on Teletubbies and Booba. And he always said, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, I got other things I'm working on. Maybe, maybe one day I'll do that. I don't know. And then finally I said, look, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Guy Malone had me on his radio show, and he and I were chatting about it. And I just mentioned this thing that I wanted Rich to look into, and I made the joke that, you know, well, maybe I will because he's not. And he said, oh, are you going to? Because I'm looking for speakers for the Roswell conference. And, bing, I was signed up to speak at Roswell, and I thought, geez, now I have to actually do the research. <laughs> <laughs> These are just two sort of little points that sort of slipped through the cracks here, but I wanted to make sure I got them in. What did, uh, obviously, I'm sure he's psyched that it's going on and everything, but what, what was Rich's reaction to your emergence into the field of, of the esoteric and, and this growing popularity that you have? He thinks it's really great. I bet, He's been yeah. amazingly supportive, and he's really proud of me. And, um, you know, when I had to do my first presentation at Roswell, I was a complete basket case because I am horribly shy, and I had a terrible time getting myself to just stand up in front of a group of people and talk. And he was absolutely wonderful about helping me prepare a slide presentation and, you know, helping me organize all my information and showing me how to use PowerPoint and the whole thing. And uh, aside from just, you know, telling me over and over and over that everything would be fine, I'd be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and everything was fine. We had a really good time, and it went very well. But I, I actually asked Rich to please not be in the room because I thought I'd be too nervous, nervous in front of him. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it if I know you're there. And and the last uh, just sort of general ufology type of question, um, and we, I kind of alluded to this earlier, because you've been to just tons of conferences. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the pluses and the minuses of conferences and what you'd like to see changed as far as conferences go. Because, you know, everybody sort of has their own mm -hmm. thing and what they'd like to see more of or what they'd like to see less of or improvements they'd like to see and that kind of thing. And and being someone who's been to so many conferences, I'm sure uh, that you just have a, done your own sort of uh, consumer research type of thing. So, um, you know, talk a little bit about the UFO conferences. Um, well, it's my own opinions. You know, I haven't oh, totally. really done research or anything on this, but, um, yeah, we have been to quite a few conferences. And I was just telling Rich, it's interesting about UFO conferences as opposed to, say, medical conferences or, you know, conferences in other fields where when you get a bunch of doctors together, you don't have an audience. You know, you have professionals in the field who have done research and written papers, and they get together and they make their presentations. And mm -hmm. it's very much professionals in the field sharing their research with each other. UFO conferences are like that, but you also have people who paid to come and watch this. So there's an element of you have an audience who came for entertainment mm -hmm. as well, as well as people who paid to come and learn about the research that's being presented. But it's different from other places where people might 
pay to come and take a course or a seminar on something, you know that everyone's at a certain level and you're presenting to a certain level. At conferences, you've got people who are at every level. You've got people who just were walking by outside and saw the sign and said, UFOs. There are people actually talking about these things that aren't real, and they'll come in and they are starting from ground zero. And then you get people who have been reading everything that came out for the past 30, 40, 50 years, and maybe they've got a collection of photos at home that every researcher would be drooling over if they only knew. So when you write a presentation to give at something like this, it's really difficult in a way, and I really I take my hat off to Rich and all the people who were at his level. They have to present to every every level in the audience because you're you're talking to people who aren't even sure they believe in lights in the sky versus people who know exactly how many races have been here and and what the government's got under wraps and they know what's happened to all the information and where all the secrets are stored and. And it's really hard to present anything to such a wide-ranging group and not sound really like an idiot to one group or the other. And I think that's really fascinating that you can come and that you can come in from zero, from outside. You can pay your money and come in and listen to all these people, these really brilliant people who've been researching this really fascinating, really outside the box kind of information for so many years and whenever they get together and they start bouncing ideas off each other you can just see sparks flying yeah. and I don't mean people getting angry upset with each other it's like new connections you can hear the little electrical connections being made and you can tell people are jumping up to the next level and they're thinking oh, okay that's who I need to talk to and I'm sure you kind of have to grapple with that same sort of problem doing the radio show, right? Yeah, when I, I start talking about any topic with a guest, I, I often have to say, okay, well, for someone who's not familiar with this field, what is that term again? Yeah, because especially with the paranormal-related things as opposed to the ufology ones, I have a tendency to drop in because I've been reading this stuff my whole life. And like, oh, yeah, I know about, you know, certain, like, higher paranormal activity near ley lines or near water or know that paranormal energy can't cross running water without getting broken up and dissipated and all this sort of thing and rich is like not as familiar with that as i am but it does sometimes come up in ufo cases that he reads about and that's where it's fun discussing these cases with him because sometimes he'll say something that'll trigger something that i read about or i'll be able to say well you know what that sounds like that really sounds like poltergeist activity that case you're telling me doesn't sound like a ufo case and so then he'll come at it from a totally different angle, and it really does open up what you are able to find out about something. Oh, totally. It sounds like the, your relationship is perfect in the sense that you guys really sort of help each other uh, learn more and more as you go along. Yeah. For the radio show, you've had uh, just, just a bunch of different guests on here. I'm looking at the ones that, that you've interviewed. Obviously, Rich comes in from time to time as the guest host, uh, mm -hmm. and you've done a lot of different outside-of-ufology-type subjects, Penn State, Paranormal Society, you got uh, uh, a Wicca expert who came on twice, mm -hmm. Lloyd Pye with the Star Child Skull and Joe Fax with the Paranormal Bigfoot, and George Norrie talking about Coast to Coast. Where would you like to take the show as it goes on, and, and what kind of subjects you want to delve into, and, and uh, who do you want to have on in the future as the show well, keeps going? Well, just lately I've been hearing about a lot of ancient monuments and things here in America. Um, someone just past weekend was just telling us about pyramids here in the United States. 
And, um, I mean, obviously we all know about the ones in Egypt and we know about the ones in Central America. And, you know, I've been hearing about pyramids in China, but I had not been aware of any in the Midwestern U.S., so I really want to find out something about that. Um, I'd love to do a show on Coral Castle in Florida, which is, you know, sort of similar to the pyramids. Nobody knows how he built that either. I would love to do one on Borley Rectory. I think I mentioned earlier I'm trying to find somebody who could speak about that. I have this whole wish list, you know, and I, yeah. I was just thinking I should really just sit down and make a list instead of keeping all this in my head because I, I do this sort of randomly calling whoever I think of at the moment. What's coming up on the horizon for you outside of uh, future episodes of your radio show? What do you have coming up? I know you're going to be at the oh. UFO CRC4 in November. Uh, talk a little bit about that and uh, whatever else you want to plug that's coming on the horizon. Yeah, well, that's the Crash Retrieval Conference. It'll be in Las Vegas this November. I believe it's the second weekend, the 10th, 11th, and 12th. Um, Rich and I will both be speaking there. I'm not sure what his topic is going to be. I'm going to be doing a very a brief, just a 30-minute presentation on the uh, media desensitization. And when I spoke in Roswell, I was obsessing trying to get 90 minutes, and I did manage to get 90 minutes, and now I'm going to be obsessing cutting it down, <laughs> trying to make it all coherent in only 30 minutes, but that's that's fine. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. We met last year at the at the conference yeah. uh, in Vegas, so that's right. I'm not sure if I'll be there or not this year, but uh, if I if I am, I'll be sure to run into you. Yeah, definitely. It'd be great to see you. Definitely, definitely. And uh, people can find out about that at ufoconference.com. That's the information for mm-hmm. the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. Are you going to be taping interviews and stuff for your show? Because I know you did some in Roswell for for your show. Are you going to be doing that kind of thing at uh, in Vegas? I'm not sure. I'll have to check with the producers and find out how we want to do that. Um, they were actually broadcasting live from Roswell. They had a room set up. You know, Joe said, if you want to interview somebody, you know, find someone and just let me know and we'll get you in the queue. And so I did my show at an odd time. I didn't do it at my usual Sunday afternoon. I just did it whenever he had a free time. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I had a great time talking to you. Uh, The show, your show, is Through the Keyhole, and it's on Sundays, 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the ParanormalRadioNetwork.org. All one word, ParanormalRadioNetwork.org. That's where you'll find Karen Dolan's show. And, of course, the website is KeyholePublishing.com, correct? That's correct. Awesome, awesome. See, I do my homework. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I said, I'm really excited about your emergence into the field of ufology and the esoteric, and um, really looking forward to see where it goes. It sounds like you and Rich have a great relationship, and it's just... It's like a little think tank for for the yeah, esoteric. We're raising two kids in it. Aren't awesome. they going to be interesting? <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, hey, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show, and I wish you well. And people obviously can check out the, your show and, and dig in and enjoy it. Great. Thank you so much for having me on, Tim. I've really enjoyed this, and I love to listen to your show. Oh, well, Really exciting thanks. to get a chance to be on it. Well, now you're part of the show, too. <laughs> That's so cool. That does it for this week's edition of VOA Audio Big, big thanks to Karen Dolan for coming on the show. You can find out more information on Karen Dolan at the website keyholepublishing.com, K-E-Y-H-O-L-E-P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G.com. And don't forget, Karen will be featured in an upcoming issue of UFO Magazine in an interview conducted by BOA's own Leslie for her outstanding column, Beyond the Dial, in UFO Magazine. Check that out on newsstands wherever finer magazines are sold. 
Up next is normally the time for Banal of America Audio listener feedback. But since we're just getting the wheels on the bus here for BOA Audio Season 3, now is the time to start sending in your letters for listener feedback. If you've got a comment, a question, a guest suggestion, a show suggestion, all of those would fall under the umbrella of feedback. And that's what we want here on BOA Audio. We want your feedback. So send me your feedback, and I will read it on the show at the end of a future episode of BOA Audio. How do you become a part of this exciting portion of the program? That's simple. Go to banalofamerica.com, click the contact button on the left-hand side of the screen. That'll put you on the contact page with all of the information on getting in touch with me. Or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods puts your correspondence at the top of the inbox for BOA Audio listener feedback. Moving right along, it's time for the thanks portion of the show. As we say, week in and week out, we could not do a program like BOA Audio without the help and support of the fantastic BanalofAmerica.com staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Tina Senna, these members of our staff are integral to the short-term and long-term success and viability of BOA. The show and the website would be a fraction of what it is today without the help and support of these fine folks. So thank you to the BOA staff. As I'm sure you know by now, BanalofAmerica.com and BOA Audio are a vast multimedia resource that is freely available to people all over the world. How do we do that? We do that via donations from people like you, the great BOA Audio listeners. How can you go about helping BOA Audio? You just go to BanalofAmerica.com or the BOA Audio archive page and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal, and then you can make a donation to help support the website and the audio series. Every donation counts. Every donation helps. Don't be one of those people that says, oh, someone else will do it. I don't need to do it. No. you got to be the guy that steps up. So are you going to step up and donate and help keep BOA Audio up and running and free and commercial-free to all of our great listeners the world over? I hope so. Go to banalofamerica.com, click the PayPal button, and make a donation. It would be greatly appreciated. Next week on the program, we have a real barn burner of an episode for you. This past summer, I took a little excursion up to Oak Island, Nova Scotia, Canada, to explore the Oak Island mystery, and I made some great friends while I was up there. One of them is Danny Hennigar of the Oak Island Tourism Society. So when we were sitting down to put together BOA Audio Season 3, I wanted to bring the story of Oak Island, to the BOA Audio listeners. We're going to discuss the Oak Island Money Pit mystery from top to bottom, including how it all started, how it has evolved over the years, the popular theories as to what is at the bottom of the Oak Island Money Pit, the famous Oak Island side stories like the death of Robert Restall, Nolan's Cross, and Borehole 10X. Plus, we're going to find out the latest news on what's going on at Oak Island today. Of course, tons and tons more. This is a richly detailed edition of BOA Audio covering an often overlooked realm of esoterica, the Oak Island mystery. Trust me, my friends, you are not going to want to miss this interview. That's next week on BOA Audio. On that note, there's not much left to say, folks. Until next week, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.